All right, well, let's take them and turn in them to the uh, book of 1 Corinthians as we re-kind of acclimate ourselves to our journey through this particular letter. We're going to look at the third chapter in its entirety today, all 23 verses, uh, in a message that I have entitled, Let's Grow Up. And so uh, let's take our hearts to the Lord. Father God, we just pray that today, as always, as has been said, I would just echo that you would continue to move and minister in this place and in our hearts. Uh, We just thank you, Lord, for assembling us together. We recognize that we're not here uh, accidentally or coincidentally, Lord, but that you've ordained that we should be here. And so to that end, we just pray, God, that you would, uh, Lord, give us ears to hear you, uh, that we might be changed by you, God. And I just pray that if there be any here today who maybe don't know you, that by the end of our time together... Uh, Lord, that uh, uh, salvation would visit this place. We love you, and we just uh, give this time to you in Jesus' name. Everybody say, Amen. Amen. Well, they should be uh, united, but instead they're divided, and that is the current situation in the congregation of Corinth. Uh, dividing over various teachers who've been ministering to them rather than simply recognize that it's Jesus who's been ministering through these said teachers to these individuals. And they've drifted back into kind of placing this premium as the Corinthians had this uh, mentality. They were placing this premium on the wisdom of this world rather than uh, recognizing the true wisdom of God in Christ. And so they banter back and forth about who had the best delivery, who waxed the most eloquently, and they were missing the point entirely. And Paul says, look, I intentionally kept my preaching simple, uh, my words straightforward. I didn't want anyone to think that people were abandoning their lives and, and, you know, following what I said because I was such a smooth talker. But rather, it would be clear that when people experienced the confrontation of the gospel, And what followed was a transformation of their lives, uh, that it was a demonstration of the spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith might not be in the wisdom of men, but rather in the power of God. You see, we want people to see the hope in us of what God can do for them. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't have a 10 or a 12-step program for you. I've got a one-step program, and it's out of darkness and into light. It's out of death and into life. And it has nothing to do with the wisdom of men and everything to do with the power of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul told them that there was an unsearchable, unfathomable uh, wisdom awaiting them in Christ, which God has revealed to us through his spirit. However, God is not going to force it upon you. Listen, spiritual illumination and revelation has to be received through a spiritual evaluation. Uh, Or to understand that another way, spiritual things can really only be explained and understood by spiritual people. Yet even in that, Paul, as we will see in our section of scripture today, you can have the spirit of God in you, Paul will explain, uh, and still not allow the spirit of God to lead or rule you. And so though you've been 
quote unquote born again by the spirit of God, you're not really a spiritual person that is submitted to or led by the spirit, but rather you are what uh, the Bible refers to as a carnal person. And so let's take our attention here and look at the very first verse of the third chapter. He says, and I, brethren, could not speak to you, notice, as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. Now, we spoke the last time we were gathered around uh, the book of 1 Corinthians here a couple of weeks ago of the two types of people there are in this world. There are those who are saved and there are those who are unsaved. You are either alive to God in Christ Jesus or dead in sin and transgression, spiritually speaking. I mean, you're either in the dark or you're in the light. There's just no ifs, ands, or buts about it. However, of those who are saved, Paul points out that there are actually two categories of people in that particular bracket. There are those who are Our word is spiritual, meaning as we've been speaking of, they're seeking to pattern their lives in obedience to the word of God. They pursue the things of God. They desire to be uh, found well-pleasing to God. They walk in the spirit. They, uh, again, seek to be sensitive to the spirit. They want to be led by the spirit. They are a spiritual people. And then there are those whom he refers to here as, our word is, carnal people. Born again? Yes. Headed for heaven? Yes. But they are, we might say, traveling third class. Uh, You know, we, we might rightly say that they're, oh, dominated not by the flesh entirely, right? That's what the word carnal means. It means fleshly. And so we can't rightly say that they're dominated in every aspect of their lives by the flesh or else they wouldn't be born again. Uh, they, would, they would be showing zero signs of regeneration. However, to some extent, some greater, some lesser, they are still governed and guided, driven and directed by the flesh. That is, they're still using a worldly kind of reasoning. Are you following me? Now, when I speak of the flesh, okay, I don't want you to misunderstand me as though I'm speaking of this skin and bones that, uh, you know, you abide in. Uh, The body in and of itself is not evil. Ladies and gentlemen, you need to understand this. It's not sinful. It's simply a shell. It's a housing, if you will, uh, in which we abide, right? I mean, Jesus himself had a body, uh, but he did not wrestle with a sin nature, And sometimes people are confused on this. You know, we spoke last week of the sinless, holy nature of Jesus as the perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world. So when we speak of the flesh, we're speaking of that intrinsic desire that's woven into the fabric of our inner being that will oftentimes express itself in tempting us to go in some kind of perverted or uh, ungodly or self-seeking, self-gratifying direction. So the flesh serves self. Are you with me? And it might serve self through lying or stealing or cheating or flattering, ungodly physical gratification through substance abuse or alcohol abuse or fornication. I mean, you get the idea. Or it may even try to get you simply to dance as close to the line as possible without taking you over the edge. I think we've all uh, you know, wrestled with that. These are the 
kinds of things that are the impulses or the inclinations of the flesh. How close can I get, you see, before it actually becomes sin to me? I want to dance on the edge, you know. So though it's not the body per se, it will, I mean, obviously, many times seek to express itself through the body. Romans chapter 7, if you're interested, you might want to jot that down so you can look it up later. It's a great read with this regard. What I will to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, that I find myself doing. Mastered by the flesh, those uh, maybe ungodly uh, impulses uh, rather than being led by the Spirit. But check it out, guys. What I want you to see here as we make our way through is that there is a sense in which it is a completely, let me just use the word natural, what we might call transitional phase of the Christian life. We might even refer to the spiritual man as the one who is mature in Christ, and the carnal man is the one who is immature or a babe in Christ. And we kind of expect, don't we? We kind of expect a brand new believer to to stumble or fumble now and again or not have his or her act completely together all the time. I mean, they're a brand new baby in Christ. And babies, by nature, are selfish. They don't speak well. They don't consider others. Hey, they mess their drawers, you know. But as time goes by, we rightly expect that they grow out of those things. They begin to mature. If not, then we have to recognize that there's something wrong. And so too in the body of Christ. Listen, if you've known the Lord for maybe a couple of years or more, and you haven't grown, uh, you haven't matured beyond your born-again experience, I mean, you know what's right, you're just not doing it. You're really not a new believer. You should be moving on into maturity. You should be engaging in ministry, but you're just still kind of doing what you want, uh, when you want. You're essentially, if we could just say it honestly, you're just all about self. Well, there's something wrong. I mean, Jesus is in your life. He's just not seated on the throne. You're allowing your seat of decision to be governed and guided, directed and driven by the flesh. And so the question that we kind of are at at this kind of crossroad in our time of study today as we sit here and we think about what we've heard and what's being said is that, you know, well, which category, and this is something, you know, between you and Jesus, you just have to think through and be honest with yourself, which category am I in? Now, we talked about the saved, the unsaved, the natural, the spiritual. Listen, if you're a natural man... You don't know the Lord. You've never given your heart to the Lord. Maybe up to this point, you've really not much considered or had an interest in the Lord. Well, we implore you, submit to Jesus Christ. Believe on him and be born again. Salvation uh, by grace through faith in him awaits you in such a case. If you're the spiritual man, you know, you desire to be led by the Spirit, you want to be sensitive to the Spirit, you're in the Word of God, looking to be obedient and well-pleasing to God, hey, praise God, keep going, keep growing, serve the Lord with all your heart. If you're the carnal man, 
Well, then today is the day that the Lord is knocking on the door of your heart. And you need to confess your sin. And you need to turn from your sin. And you need to give the Lord Jesus Christ his rightful place upon the throne. Guys, don't try to justify yourself based upon what someone else does or what you've seen or how things have gone or, well, so-and-so, so it must be okay for me because they, you see, no, there's none of that. This is between you and the Lord. Give him his rightful place, ruling and reigning upon the throne of your heart. Move into maturity. Refuse to abide any longer in the infantile state. Ask the Lord to strengthen your resolve to give him his way. Ladies and gentlemen, laying hold of all of that for which he's laid hold of you. Why did Jesus Christ grab hold of your life? Are you walking in it, you see? He says in verse 2, he says, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you're still not able. Notice he says, I fed you with milk. Now we're still in this kind of this metaphor, this spiritual kind of... uh, what will we say, um, kind of an example that he's, he's speaking of. This is how, how babies begin, isn't it? With a basic diet of essential nutrients. Now the Corinthians thought that they were this super spiritual bunch of believers. But Paul says, look, even now, I mean, he, he stayed with them for a year and a half. He's been gone from them for quite some time. Now he's writing to them and he says, even now, I, I started you off on on milk, and even now you're not able to receive the substance, the solid food. The idea is that they haven't even grown into the basic principles that have already been laid out for them. And by the way, I don't want you to be confused on this idea of milk and meat when it comes to God's word. You know, as though there are certain, shall we say, elite theological concepts that are to be withheld from people until they can handle it. You know, you want the truth. Well, you can't handle the truth. <laughs> that was dumb. <laughs> that, that movie, some of you recognize that movie, but... Every, listen to me, every doctrine that is taught in seminary can be taught in children's ministry. The difference would be in perhaps the words that are used, the depth, detail, and degree to which they are searched out. You don't like graduate. You know, you arrive and now you can, you know, wade out into the deep things of God. No, it's it's more about your appetite, you see. He says you weren't, and notice he says, and aren't even now able to receive it. Guys, that's a big, that's a big tell. That's kind of one of those little key, like, uh, uh, illuminating, revelating sections there. It's not that God was preventing them from having it, okay? It's that they weren't able to receive it. It's not on God's end. God's not waiting for you to arrive so he can finally know it's not on God's end. It's on my end. It's on our end. He says, you weren't able to receive it. They were feasting on what we might call or consider spiritual junk food. They didn't have an appetite for the meat and potatoes of the word of God. Oh, you've seen them, right? The child who has so filled their stomach with junk that they just won't eat 
their meal. You know, they love the chips. They love the cookies. And they won't receive what's good for them. That'll help them grow because they've given themselves over to junk food. Well, that's the way some Christians are. They're so conditioned to spiritual junk that they don't even really want what's good for them. It's really not about what they need. It's about what they want. And if something isn't sugar-coated, if something's not watered down, they don't want it. Listen, if it's not entertaining, I won't engage. But God doesn't want you to stop at Jesus loves me, this I know. Okay? He wants you to know. He wants you to have an appetite to know the height and the width and the depth and the length of his love. You see, don't stop at salvation or justification. Ladies and gentlemen, I I encourage you, move on into that sanctification. We want to grow. We want to mature in the message of the cross. And Paul continues to admonish them here in verse 3. He says, for you are still carnal. Why can't they receive it? For you are still carnal. For where there are envy, underline it, strife, And divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, remember this going back earlier, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Now remember we talked about the self-centered motives of the baby, right? I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I, 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 me, 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 right? It's always about self. He says, you think that you're spiritual, you're thinking there that you're spiritual for aligning yourself with a certain teacher, this really, this great man of God, and you see, I'm kind of aligning myself with him and dividing with others over the matter. The fact is, he says, things like envy and strife, divisions, and dissensions are proof that you're not spiritual, but that you're carnal. You're being governed by. You're given over to the flesh, that self-gratifying, self-seeking, interwoven into your inner being kind of an impulse, you see. Oftentimes we think of someone who's carnal, you know, we think of carnal behavior as some maybe sexual misconduct or substance abuse issue. I mean, they're really carnal. And certainly those things qualify. However, perhaps a little more subtly, things we don't think of quite as readily, Paul points out that problems, listen to me, in human relationships are evidence they reveal that something is wrong in our relationship with God. So problems on the horizontal plane point to problems on the vertical plane. Are you following me? Think about that. The mature Christian will take to heart the admonition of Christ, love one another as I have loved you. You also love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples, that you belong to me. How? What's the tell? What's the giveaway, you see? If you have love for one another. 
You see, what we're learning here, family, is that one very real aspect of our growing up as believers, moving on into maturity spiritually, is learning to get along with each other. You know, children like to disagree. I've had a whole house full of them. And you know, there they are, and they like to fuss, and they like to fight. But the mature will, right, out of love for God and love for one another, seek to get along. Even if perhaps I'm the one who's been wronged, is it really worth it to divide, to, to, to have this contention, you see? It, it, later on in this book, even, Paul will say, wouldn't it just be better to be wronged rather than to be dividing and mixing and mingling and fussing and fighting and, and, and kind of ruining a godly reputation, you see? When we're given over to envy or strife, again, dissensions, divisions, he says we're behaving like, well, the phrase is, mere men. Meaning, we're no different. What's the difference between you and the ungodly individual and how you handle a situation? You following? No different. I'm no different in a situation where there's envy and strife and I'm a part of division and dissension. There's no difference in me and an unregenerate individual who doesn't have the person or the power of the Holy Spirit active in their life. Listen, God has every right, doesn't he? God has every right to expect to anticipate more out of a Christian than a non-believer. You've been equipped. You've been enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit to live on a different level than the person of this world. As a spiritual people, we are to you know, the biblical phrase is that we're to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the inclinations, the predispositions, the desires of the flesh. You know what I want to do? I want to pop you in the nose, right? You know what I want to do? I want to fight with you over this matter. But I, I'm to crucify the flesh. I'm to walk in the Spirit. Is it about what I want? Is that really what it's about? That's not what the Bible teaches. And when we're willing, according to the context here, when we're willing to divide over preachers or which church we think is is better, right? Or put people on platforms and set one above another, dividing over opinions, that's not spiritual. It's carnal. Look at verse 5. He says, Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor is he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Guys, what is he saying? He's saying it's not the instrument, but the one who wields it, who deserves the praise, right? I mean, here we are. Look at this. This is a beautiful instrument here. It's going to sit here until someone picks it up and does something with it, right? It's just of itself. Is it going to do anything? It's not going to do anything. 
but you put it in the right hands of the right person, of the skilled musician, and something beautiful happens. You know, the scalpel, there it is, laying on the table, and by itself, it's not going to do anything good or bad. In the hands of a competent surgeon, man, it's going to save lives. And Paul is saying that's the way God's servants are. They're instruments performing the role, the responsibility that they were designed for. But God is the one who is wielding them, who is achieving the results through them. Therefore, God is the one who deserves the praise. I have never met anyone yet who after an open heart surgery or whatever the case may be has gone and said, where's that scalpel, man? I really got to thank it. I really want to give some attention to it. Man, I really want to put it in a frame and mount it. Never met that person. But man, they want to talk to the doctor, don't they? They they want to be appreciative of the one who held it, who wielded it, who really did something of value for them, you see. And so, God is the one who deserves the praise. He's the one wielding the instrument. He's the one who deserves the honor and the glory. In verse 5, he says, look, we're not the ones on whom you believed. We're the ones through whom you believed. But let's remain focused on whom you believe. Now, later on in this letter, Paul will speak in more detail about this concept For now, we want to recognize the idea here is that God enlists, if you'll allow me that term, he enlists different people into different roles and responsibilities in his work. And we are each accountable before him to walk in them and perform that role. Here, he says it like this. He says, I planted, Apollos watered. Different roles, different responsibilities. Paul had been called to one task, Apollos to another, and each was ministering according to their God-given calling and responsibility. However, what resulted in salvation wasn't to their glory, it was to God's glory. Peter said it like this, he said, as each one has received a gift, guys, we could stop right there. Quick question. What does each one mean? Every single individual, right? Is there anyone here who's not an each or a one? Okay, just making sure. So each one has received a gift. Oh, so I have a role. Okay. So what's my responsibility? What's the next line say? Come on, somebody. What's it say? minister it to one another. Oh boy, here comes the conviction, right? So I've been given a role, am I being responsible? Each one has been given a gift, minister it to one another as, notice, and he's gonna talk about this later on, good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And here he gives a few illustrations. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers or serves, it's just serve. You serve in anywhere. If you're not, you should, kind of a thing. Let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. That in all things, notice what's the end result. So we have a role, a responsibility, and a result. You seeing it? What's the result? That God will be glorified through Jesus Christ. 
Why? Because he's the one to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do you see how this is working? We have a role, we have a responsibility, and the result will be to God's glory. Ladies and gentlemen, don't you want that? Oh my. When a farmer or a gardener plants a seed and waters the seed, you know, I'm assuming we have, if we don't have farmers here, I'm sure we have gardeners here, people that have planted, and you know, and there you are, and you're creating this environment that's conducive to growth, but you can't, how many of you have realized this? This is what I've realized, I can't cause the growth. Oftentimes I hinder the growth, I think, in my efforts of any kind of planting and such. Um, But I can't manifest the increase. I can't cause the growth. That's something only God can do. And when it happens in my yard, it's truly a miracle of life. (laughs) You know? Well, listen, it's the same thing in ministering the gospel to people. You know, there you are. You're planting. It's like planting is kind of evangelistic, isn't it? Uh, You're sharing your story with your work associate there in the break room or, you know, on lunch or, or maybe at the gym or with your neighbor across the way, whatever the case may be. Watering might be more along teaching lines, just, you know, giving, people's, giving people God's word or, or maybe just continuing to share with them after the initial seed is planted. You know, Jesus spoke of God's word like being like seed and the human heart like soil into which it's sown. And the cultivating of the ground and the watering process, guys, it may carry on for years and years. But one day, man, when that person believes on the Lord, and you, you may or may not even be around when that happens, you know, there they are, they're born again. It was something that took place between them and God. You know, God brought forth life in them. I can't create life in anyone. You can't create life in anyone. It's to the praise and the glory of God. So why divide over, you know, one who planted or one who watered? You know, who's more important, the guy that had the clamps or the guy that stitched you up? Or the, you know what I'm saying? It's like, why? In reality, they're all on the same team. Right? We're not competing, we're co-laboring. We're all working toward the same goal. And guys, when we understand this, we can individually and corporately and collectively give God glory. We can stand as one and glorify God together. Ours is to be diligent to plant the seed, to water the seed, to pull the weeds, to shoo away the pests occasionally, right? We want to maintain an environment that's conducive to growth so that when the harvest happens, man, we can glorify God. Look at verse 8, guys. He says, now, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field. You are God's building. You see, we don't work against each other. We're working with one another to increase the kingdom of God. And each one will have his own reward. Notice, 
to his own, or each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And so we can work together. This is kind of cool. Listen now. We work together collectively, but you and me, we will be rewarded individually. And we see the wisdom of God in this. What's the basis of reward? I mean, will I be rewarded based on how talented I am or how gifted I may be? Uh, how about how fruitful or, or quote-unquote successful the work appears to be? Or is that the basis of the reward for me? No. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says each one will be rewarded according to his own, notice, labor. The author of Hebrews said it like this, for God is not unjust to forget your work, notice, and labor of love, labor of love, which you have shown toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Here's the thing, guys. God may, in his grace, may or may not, but let's just say for the sake of uh, the, the illustration, God may call me to work in fertile soil. You know, there I am, I'm planting, I'm watering, I'm seeing exponential increase, things are just popping. And he calls you to pioneer a work where the ground is fallow, it needs busted up, it takes years and years. Now in truth, you're working way harder than I am, but you're seeing less tangible results. But you're faithful. You know, you keep at it. We're seeing here your reward will be greater than mine even though it appeared from all outward practical perspectives that I had more success than you did. Think of Jeremiah. You remember that guy? Prophet Jeremiah? He saw, listen, zero to minuscule results from his entire prophetic ministry. From all practical perspectives, he failed. But man, he was faithful. And I'm just telling you, when we get there, his reward will be something to behold. And then there's, there's Jonah, right? I mean, fairly self-centered, mostly unwilling. Yet God won the entire city of Nineveh with minimal, we might even go as far as to say bitter effort on his behalf. You see, God sees beyond the surface of, wow, they must really be doing it right. Look at all the success that they've experienced, that they're enjoying. Or, man, I don't know what they're doing, but man, they just can't get that work off the ground. God sees the work. He sees the labor. He sees the faithfulness of the individual. For we are God's fellow workers. Think about that. You've heard it said before, you know, we can't work without him. And as a general rule, he won't work without us. God wants to partner with you. As each one has received a gift, so let him or her minister it to one another. 
God wants to partner with you in the accomplishing of his agenda. Not for his benefit. Believe you me, he could do it way better without us. It's for our benefit, for our growth, and his glory. Now, look at verse 10. According, he says, uh, to the grace of God, which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, he says, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. And if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. So whatever our role, whatever our responsibility, it's not because we're great, it's because of God's grace. Are you with me? Verse 10, he says, according to the grace of God, which was given me. Paul says, look, I laid the foundation. That is, he established the work. And what was the foundation he laid? It was the only foundation that can be laid, right? It's Jesus Christ. Family, listen to me. It's quite simple. If Jesus Christ isn't the foundation, it's not the church. Okay, are you with me? Maybe any number of things. You may have a, like a country club. You may have a, some sort of assembly, but you don't have the church, you see, because Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. But others will build upon it, as Apollos did in our illustration here. He says, but we got to be careful how we build, right? The, the foundation's been laid. Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. And others of us come along and we build upon it. Now, there are worthwhile materials that can be used, and there are worthless materials that can be used. Now, the worthwhile materials, if you just kind of think about them for a second, man, they're valuable, they're difficult to come by, uh, and they endure, they're lasting, they endure the fire. You know, gold, silver, precious stones, don't think of gems, think of stones, think of granite, think of marble, things like this. Now, worthless materials are cheap, easy to come by, and readily destroyed in a fire. You know, wood, hay, straw. You know, you're thinking little pig, little pig, you know. In the house of straw, the house of wood, and then the one built with stone, right? Endured. So, when you build with the wisdom of man, you know, we're thinking entertainment, thinking building around a charismatic personality, a sugar-coated emotional you know, stories and things like this. It's like using hay and straw. You know, it just it isn't going to last. But when you build with those precious, valuable materials, prayer, the Word of God, and the power of the Spirit of God, man, you're building something that's going to stand forever. And the materials we've used, Paul says, will be revealed as by fire. Now, this isn't a reference to salvation. Uh, 
It's a reference to rewards. You know, some of our labor, probably maybe much of our labor, will just go up in smoke. You know, perhaps all of some, you know, their labor, there it is. It'll just be incinerated. They'll be saved. They won't have anything to show for it. See, again, the, the, the fire doesn't purify the worker family. This is where, uh, you know, your Roman Catholic friends, they'll use this section of Scripture uh, to try to teach you about, uh, you know, purgatory and things. And it's not a reference to purgatory. Purgatory is a teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. It is not a teaching of the Bible. Okay, you need to know that. Uh, purgatory in its entirety essentially denies the finished work of the cross. So it's not, it's not the worker that's purified, but our works will be tested, okay? And he says in verse 16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And if anyone, underline it, defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Now, just for time's sake, I want to say here, this passage has nothing to do with you as an individual. Okay? People use this to reference how a person takes care of their body. You know, you're, you're the temple of God. Don't, you can't defile the temple of God. Uh, now, later on, Paul will address us individually as the temple of God. But this is a statement pointing collectively. All right? In other words, the word you is plural. It's like in the southern draw, we say y'all. Right? Y'all are the temple of God. So, so and that's what he's saying here. He's saying you all, collectively, you see, you are the temple of God. Yes, God dwells in us individually, but he's in our midst as we gather, or there we are, collectively. Here's the point. Here's what he's saying. Stay true to the context. He's saying it matters to God how people treat the church or his temple. And if we damage the church, God is going to, it will damage our walk in relationship with God. The context is with reference to division and dissension. If you're causing division in the church, you see that? It will have personal ramifications on your relationship with God. How can you hope to tear something down that belongs to God and maintain this close, intimate relationship with God? You following? Okay. Your nearness to him, your walk with him, well, you're destroying it. It's being diminished. Think of it like this. Division destroys the temple, brings it to ruins. Right? I mean, think of it as a literal building. You start dividing asunder a building, you're just destroying it. The love of God in such a case, shoved to the side, bitterness and blame, taking the main stage. But God is jealous for his church. And rather than cut people off from one another, he's saying we should be working to unite and build together for the glory of God. He says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, then let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom, notice, underline it, of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, this is the book of Job, that he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the futile, that they are, or the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. 
guys, the, the quick here is uh, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Okay? That's what he's saying. Cast worldly wisdom aside. Embrace the wisdom of God. Now, it may not seem to make sense to people around you, but it will eternally benefit you. Jesus said this same concept along these lines. He said, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? These are what we would call radically diminishing returns to exchange something that would be of benefit to you eternally for something that would just matter temporarily for a few years, you see. It doesn't make sense in the beginning. You've got to lose your life to find life. He's saying, look, become a fool that you might become wise. Okay? And in verse 21, he says, Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Remember, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos. He says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that is Peter, or, or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God, is God's. He says, let no one boast in men. Oh my you know, they had this, this they were, uh, you know, esteeming Paul and Apollos and Peter and this celebrity mentality. They love to esteem, but don't, we're doing, are we any different, really? Oh, how we love to esteem men, how we love to boast in others. You know, we have the celebrities that we look up to. We even say we idolize them, right? PhDs and the rest. We love being seen with the influential of this world. We value the esteem of man more than the esteem of God. Listen, let no one boast or glory in men. He says, for all things are yours. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a radical statement, isn't it? This is what we call Christian liberty. God has given you, even death itself, it will serve you as it ushers you into his presence eternally. See? But he says all things, this, everything is yours in Christ, right? I mean, God has given you all things freely to enjoy. Now, you're thinking, man, well, if everything belongs to me and everything is there for me, well, then somebody hold the door because it's about to get crazy, Right? Well, listen, before you go crazy thinking of all the ways that you want to gratify your flesh because it all's for you, well, the next line is Christian responsibility, and you are Christ's. In other words, if what you will do will please Him, bring glory to Him, if you would invite him to be in on it or a part of it, then go for it. All things are yours, and you are Christ's. So let's set our heart upon maturity, growing to be all that God's called us to be, that we might glorify him both now and eternally. Amen?